Hello, this is Dan Brown, and I'm here today again with another Lenses on Information Architecture Conversations about IA. And today I get to talk to my good friend, Joe Sokol. Joe, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, I appreciate you uh, taking the time to chat with me, my friend. It's been a while, and uh, you're one of my favorite people on the planet, so thanks a lot. That is very kind, um, but I will. Uh, we will validate that after we have this conversation. Make sure I'm still <laughs> one of your favorite people. And just uh, Joe, I think you know. I think my dog is going to come back at some point, so we will get interrupted by the appearance of a hound dog. Uh, I hope that is okay with you. He's the boss of the outfit, right? <laughs> he definitely runs the show. So. Um, uh, I want to know, uh, I know you think a lot about information architecture, and I know you think a lot about how we can get folks involved. And I'm wondering if you can just share with us your favorite technique for drawing people into the IA process. What is it that you do when you need other folks to think about structure and navigation and stuff like that? Um, I, metaphor, really, uh, analogy, uh, and uh, usually with uh, something physical. So and, and in information architecture, we've been doing this for ages. I can remember uh, Christina Woodkey in the beginning of her book in our first edition, used using a metaphor of um, uh, shopping in, in physical grocery stores. Where does milk go? Does it go in dairy? Does it go in breakfast? Does it go in, you know, uh, cooking? You know, it could go in all three. And and that concept that a physical arrangement and choice has to do with, you know, uh, with the physical, you know, atoms, you know, the atomic nature. It can only exist in one place digitally. It can exist in different places. What I've been using lately is uh, organization. We, in our house, we originally started with our basement and we had a friend who was a professional organizer. I didn't know there was such a thing. And as we got, she's a licensed and professional organizer, has her own business, Abundance Organizing. And what uh, she talked about was uh, coming over and organizing stuff. Think, and this is something I think a lot of people can relate to, a basement, a house, books, you know, uh, you know, music collections, physical or digital. How do you organize those things? And so the way that I look at it is, is the way that Amanda talked about it. Take a look at what you have, understand what you have, put like with like, decide what you want to keep, uh, uh, give away or turf, you know, throw away, and then put them in those places and label them according to the way that you live your life. So in our basement, it was you know, you've got seven claw hammers, Joe. Do you really need or want seven claw hammers? Maybe, maybe not, you know. And and especially from her standpoint, it was, this is not judgment. We have to first see what you have and then make the determination about what do you need for the lifestyle. It's the same thing, I think, with digital assets and digital stuff. And, and, and the other thing I was thinking about today is it's not just the digital stuff and thinking about, books and records and artifacts and intranets and uh, information repositories, because some people say we don't need IA because we don't have any of that. And it's just simply not true. We have tasks, we have apps, we have destinations, we have forms, we have information, we have marketing and uh, pieces. Everything that's digital has some uh, need for organization. And that's really where I think 
uh, I start when I'm talking to people is kind of taking that metaphor physical to digital, and then you can go from there. Yeah, that's great. And I mean, we've been using those physical metaphors for such a long time. And I think the reason is, is because they resonate, right? They work and they, they make a lot of sense. Um, do you find, what, what do you do to help people sort of then bridge the gap between the, you know, the constraints that we have about, around physical space versus the constraints that we have around digital space, right? Those are sort of two different uh, spaces at the end of the day, right? In in practice, they end up being two two different spaces. How do you help people sort of um, enter into that world of abstraction? Um, and I think that a lot of that can be solved with the doing of the thing, so to speak, is literally getting in there and doing the things, whether it's using uh, uh, the ability to working in groups or even individually, but doing some sort of analysis of what is. I, it, it's hard to think about where to go unless you know where you are now. You know, one of the other metaphors that we use is wayfinding. Wayfinding is a critical term uh, for thinking about information architecture. And I go back to Marcia Bates and um, uh, 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 Card and uh, is it Riccoli, um, uh, Paroli, uh, information foraging. Uh, uh, but those are all metaphors, too, of, of the physicality of the forest, if you will. Uh, a friend of mine is a, is a through hiker, and she does, you know, she's more than a triple crown, AT, Continental Divide, Pacific Coast, El Camino, the Florida Trail. Didn't even know there was such a thing as a Florida Trail. Uh, you know, and she hikes and she she writes about these and blogs about them. But it is about how do you know where you're going? Well, you have to know what's out there and where to start. And so from a digital standpoint, it's where are we and where are we starting from? What are the assets that we have? And combine that with and who's using those assets? And so then we get into why user research is so critical to any foundational approach to information architecture. I mean, all this stuff is, is seamlessly tied up, but it's it's both tied up and it's also unique, right? We it's that dichotomy. We have to keep both of those in mind. How has the practice of IA changed for you over these? Uh, yeah, let's just say years of doing it, right? Like. Uh, in some ways, I feel like uh, we're solving the same kinds of problems that we've been solving all along. Mm -hmm. But in other ways, I feel like um, I have a greater depth of understanding of the kinds of problems that we're solving and the techniques that we can use. Definitely feels less like I'm making it up as I go along. But what, do you, what, what would you say for yourself has been kind of the biggest change over the course of doing information architecture? I think you're spot on. I think that um, on the one hand, uh, we do need to, there are basic things we need to do in any engagement. And honestly, I think that's one of the things that's missing from a lot of our UX practice writ large is an understanding of fundamentals, an understanding of the basics. Uh, and information architecture is basic stuff. It's basic work. It's part of the foundation of any digital engagement in my mind. Um, but I do think that that uh, there are a lot of patterns that we have already solved, uh, or at least that we 
We don't need to uh, discover anew. And so we can at least look at an information engagement, an information problem, and look at it again through the lenses of different patterns. Uh, you know, um, thinking of uh, Christopher Alexander and his pattern language, right? Uh, who recently passed away, uh, some, somewhat recently. But, but that idea that there are these language patterns that we can use um, but I think that uh, we have tools and, and that have certainly helped out with a lot of uh, information architecture uh, repositories, and especially on, honestly, on areas that I'm interested in and I'm not that good at, but I'm always I'm learning more about, which is in the more taxonomic and uh, ontological areas. And I think that uh, looking at the, some of the work that uh, people like Ren Pope uh, are doing in um, knowledge graphs, um, um, you know, and and so many other people are uh, thinking about the tools that that can mine certain information repositories to give us those to those bodies of information. At the same, um, I, you know, a tool that I use, uh, Screaming Frog, to do uh, crawling. It used to be we would have to do all that stuff by hand. What is the net? You know. Now we can literally have these, these powerful uh, automatic tools that, that can provide us at least a starting point. It's never enough. We can, I firmly believe that, um, like Bob uh, Kasinchek has talked about, you, you can get automated taxonomy uh, and metadata extraction only so far. You need a human in there to do the naming. We, we, and that's what we do as humans well. That was kind of a rambly way to say to answer your question, but uh, I do think that there are there are newer automated tools to be able to do some of that uh, uh, um, inventory and and uh, some of that uh, pattern mapping. Right. Um, but I still think it. You know, we're still we still have to come back to us as people to do those things. I think that we we have a lot more techniques in in workshopping and some of the uh, uh, digital tools. You know, I keep a I keep a, a, a whiteboard, a table whiteboard nearby, and I do whiteboarding. And I, I have a bigger one over here. But you know, I'm using the digital tools too. I'm using the mural and the Miro and the of what Fig Jam now, and you know, they are very useful. And you know, for me, I've been remote in one form or another since 2005. So you know, this ain't no brand new thing for me. Uh, but. It is useful to be able to have some place to start from and then work together to try to extract what that organizational approach to the digital problem should be. Sure. So I've been asking folks, uh, you know, we've been doing this for a long time, right? The practice of user experiences, arguably 20, 30 years old, maybe maybe more. Um, and I feel like one of the things that, that I've, I'm coming to terms with is that there are a lot of underlying assumptions. Uh, and I think one of the things that we UX folks uh, are good at or should be good at uh, is finding those assumptions and questioning them. Uh, and so I'm sort of turning the turning the, the lens back on ourselves. And I, I'm wondering if you feel like there's a lens we should be looking at the practice of user experience or the practice of IA through what is, is there one aspect of UX or design or IA that you think needs to be examined 
more closely? Is there one aspect that you feel like deserves to be um, under the microscope, so to speak, uh, so that we can really try and understand where it came from and what those assumptions are? I think it's a great question. I think it's a great topic to really unpack. And, and we should be asking this question more of ourselves. Um, you know, I, I would definitely say it is information architecture itself. You know, um, I would dare say, uh, and I believe this is true, but, uh, you know, I, I, I believe we met at the uh, first IA summit in Boston in at the Hilton and Logan Airport. And, um, and that was uh, 2000. Um, and the polar bear book had been out a couple of years. Uh, Lou Rosenfeld, Peter Morville, uh, huge impact. Richard Saul Lerman, you know, in his curmudgeonly nest had published uh, Information Architects, uh, both of which are behind me somewhere and had a huge impact on me. Um, I feel like the one of our biggest problems is that we are not using an information architecture lens to look at experience. You, you know, the user experience as a term took over after interaction design was used for a while, which took over after information architecture was used. And yet, um, you know, now we have this, this ridiculous construction of UX slash UI, which is fingernails on the blackboard to me. Um, you know, there, these are all different tools in the, in, in the uh, toolbox of how do we help craft a digital um, tool? I mean, whatever we want to call it, I don't want to get wrapped around the semantics of it. How do we craft a thing that people can engage with so that they can do whatever it is they're trying to do? Information architecture is one of those things that is woefully um, underappreciated. You know, it's 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 why I wrote that chapter in the 97 Things Every UX Practitioner Should Know book that Dan Berlin artfully edited um, it, it, uh, called, you know, Don't Forget About Information Architecture. And I really believe that. I think that is the, you know, the lens that we are forgetting about because of our uh, approach to um uh the you know the the sin of uh focusing on the now and the newness everything is new I was having a discussion recently where somebody was lamenting that this research that had been done user research was three years old so obviously it's out of date and I just went my head just went how is that even possible um I think that we do have a prejudice against uh, things that are older. And we have that in many ways. We have that in just human life. And we have that about, you know, our furniture, our, our telephone, um, our parents or peers uh, who are older. We know how age happens on a human level. And I think it happens in thought too. And yet for me, one of the things I try to get um, uh, some folks to think about is, Let's make sure we can do the basics well before we can move on. Let's make sure we go back to the core of these things before we can throw them out. And, and I think the information architecture at writ large is one of those things. You know, some of the specifics of it, you know, when we think about, you know, and this is also where it's going, the focus on taxonomy, the focus on, on ontology, which is, I think, very exciting in, in certain contexts. Uh, depending again on you know your information repository or the task at hand, but 
those are kind of exciting detailed things with information architecture. But if we take navigation design as a subset of the field of information architecture, or if we take, quite frankly, you know, search, I'm fascinated with search log analysis. We're not doing enough of that, which to me, again, is part of information architecture experience. It's the search experience. You said that there's sort of a focus on, um, uh, what did you say, the, uh, the now or the newness? Yeah. And I think I like sort of um, where you're going with that, where the idea is that IA does to a certain extent seem like, seem a little, um, dare I say, old school, right? Kind of a, a the IA itself is kind of a, uh, an early days way of looking at the web uh, and looking at digital product design and that mm -hmm. more modern approaches um, issue IA because, uh, I don't know, maybe they don't place as much emphasis on structure. I'm wondering if you have a theory as to sort of what is it about information architecture that got, um, that made it sort of left behind? What is it about IA that, that makes it not as appealing for designers just entering the field to get excited about. I, I think that's a really good uh, question. I don't have a quick answer. I do think part of it is the nature of information architecture. It's language heavy, heavy and we know from data that inform us that um, uh, visual designers tend not to be language focused. They tend to be a uh, 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 shape focus, they tend to be color focused, they tend to be um, um, form focused, which is ironic because there is so much of an overlap there too, in the architectural sense. But, um, which is again, there, you know, it's not meant to be any sort of criticism, but I do think that it, it does get back to that whole sense of of what is perceived to be sexy. Uh, the fact that to do information architecture well, you do have to get into spreadsheets. You do have to get into diagrams. You do have to get into boxes and arrows. I mean, you know, I, I hate to say it, but you know, there's so much of that stuff that that is part of the practice. And it also sometimes doesn't show well uh, in a rapid sense to uh, certain clients or stakeholders or or people that make decisions. So maybe that's one reason. And the other thing is, as we start looking at the type of things that go into information architecture, often um, they don't fit well within um, agile methodology. Certainly with the big A agile. Now I think I think it does. I think that taking a lean UX uh, approach. I think taking a a, a different sort of approach to those things that are architectural or critical and do work. And I think that there is, you know, the metaphor of definitely of, of uh, physical architecture or plastic architecture that does inform what we do in digital architecture. And it's ironic to me sometimes if we, if we take a project, we'll take any sort of major new project that you're thinking about. And I do, a lot of what I do is in, you know, in the enterprise level, space and government. And so I, I, there's a lot of large things that I deal with. And yet we talk a lot about data architecture or system architecture, and we leave information architecture behind. And that is curious to me. Was there, was there a moment in your career where you sort of realized, wait a minute, why aren't, why aren't we thinking about IA? 
anymore? Was there a moment sort of like, uh, or did it gradually creep up on you? Or do you remember having this moment where you were like, uh, nobody's talking about information architecture and we really need to. Sorry about that. That was a editorializing. I agree. Well, I mean, <laughs> spot on. <laughs> it is something to whine about. Um, and I, I think that um, uh, at, at, at a point, I, I would say the rise of the term UX UI. And that is a term that was driven largely by recruiters who didn't know what they were talking about and went to some conference and heard a bunch of buzzwords and tried to throw them together into, you know, we need somebody with 25 years of Ruby on Rails 3.0 and uh, design thinking and user ability, uh, uh, test, uh, acceptance testing, and, you know, whatever they wanted to throw together. So, and that's one of the things that's happened. Um, the, I think the other thing is that, um, um, you know, it is perceived as kind of boring or drudgery or it, it, information architecture is hard to make those decisions. Um, and I've been thinking about this for a good number of years, honestly. Um, when I, so, so I, you know, my career, you know, you could look it up as Ring Lardner says, <laughs> um, uh, and as you know me, Al, um, there are, there's certainly a lot of experiences I've had where um, the thing I was tasked with doing maybe was just user research. Okay, we want to find out who is in this space and what type of things they do. And yet I would also say, well, what is the information that they consume? What are the things, what are, how do they know where to go in doing these tasks that you say that they want to do or that they even know? And sometimes I would ask the question of how do you know what you don't know. How do you find that out? And so, so often that led to that question of organization of information, organization of things, even from the standpoint, and you've written about this in, in a great way in your, and I have one of your cards here, but you know, your how to guide section of the information architecture lenses is great laying so much of that out. That's a core part of information architecture, but we don't we don't think of it now as information architecture. We think of that as, oh no, that's visual design. But how do you make those choices? And how do you create those markers? And I think about my friend, you know, Dixie and her homemade Wanderlust uh, YouTube channel where she follows the white blazes on the Appalachian Trail or the you know, orange blazes on uh, the El Camino or, or whatever trail, the Florida trail, you know, stepping around the alligators and rattlesnakes. So how do we know where to go stepping around those rattlesnakes? And um, we have those rattlesnakes, obviously, within digital experiences, too. I think we could probably come up with some ideas of what those are. Right. Um, but I do think, you know, it's been a few years back, and I don't know, it's, it's not like I want to relive the glory days. I want people who are brand new to this space. I want people coming into this space, people who have zero to three years of experience, so to speak, to think about these things. I have a, um, the, you know, it's a, a friend of my niece is a technical editor and she wants to get into this space. And one of the things that comes to mind is UX writing. To me, that's a great crossover, but is UX writing its own thing? Is it part of this or that? I don't really care. That's the other thing is I don't care. I had an XO in the uh, in the army um, who once said, "I don't know what logistics is. All I know is I want some. So you experts go get it." 
that's what I think we need to have on our, our on our uh, uh, C, on our you know executive levels. You know, the C level people need to say, "I know that information architecture is important. I don't know what it is. I, I don't really care to define it. That's your job. But go get it. Make sure that people know what we have, where they can go, and uh, uh, how that path relates to the other things around them." So uh, now we come to the part where I get to tell you about one of the sort of preconceptions or assumptions that I've long held uh, about our work here in the digital space. And, um, uh, and then you and I get to kind of deconstruct it uh, together. Uh, I've been apologizing uh, to everyone when I do this because, you know, I feel like I'm asking you to do labor that I should be doing myself, um, but I'm hopeful that it is valuable for both of us. Uh, and I've been trying to make a list of like all of these preconceptions, these assumptions that I carry around with me about information architecture. And I thought it would be fun for you and I to go, as you were saying, uh, back to basics. So one of the assumptions is that every digital product needs a main navigation. Every digital product needs a main menu. And I feel like no matter what we're looking at, whether it's you know a social media product or a e-commerce product or a marketing website or whatever it is, there's always a main navigation. There's a main menu. And, uh, and in fact, there are some maybe newer apps where there's not so obviously a main menu. And I feel like I don't even want to give those apps the time of, time of day, right? Like I can't even engage with them because they just don't fit this mental model in my head that is so ingrained. So my question for you, right, is, um, is like, what would you say about uh, this preconception that every digital product uh, needs uh, a main menu? How might I question that assumption? Uh, that's fascinating. That's a fascinating idea is uh, the menuification of experience and, you know, how necessary is that? And again, back to metaphor, you know, we, we come up with that because uh, you know, it used to be, you know, choose from one from column A, one from column B, you know, whatever kind of menus in a food sense, in a restaurant sense. Um, uh, but there's always that starting point, as opposed to the experiential approach. And maybe this is where you're going. What if there were those things that say, um, uh, conversation, you know, we think about conversational design. Is there a menu within conversational design? Maybe not. Maybe it's, it's, I want to do this. Okay, well, here is that. I want to do that. Maybe the menu comes from that person. Now, you know, one of the reasons that we use menus, one of the reasons restaurants use menus, I'm sure, is so that uh, um, someone can't walk into a place and say, I want some naan with peanut butter and scrambled eggs. Um, first of all, that should be illegal. It is, I think, in 17 states. Uh, and the other thing is that um, um, uh, there's no way to even encapsulate all of that. But if we go back to the memos and we go back to, um, was it 1948? 
Um, and we think about that idea of all the knowledge in the world available at the fingertips of, of a person, all the offerings, all the digital offerings available on demand. Um, it, it may be that you can do without that navigation of menu items and then the conversational thing. Think about, and this is one of the things I touched on in, in, in my little chapter in the book, but I, you know, thinking about conversational, thinking about voice, you know, I mean, if, if, assuming there were a good voice command system, we were not there yet. Um, uh, but, but thinking, you know, uh, you know, Terry, you know, where is the, um, uh, best place to find the worst tacos in Ottumwa, Iowa. Okay. Well, what's the menu for that? It's, is it, you know, food, tacos, or is it Ottumwa? Is it ridiculous queries? You know, well, where, where do those go? Maybe it doesn't matter. So, but, but, but I think that there is, a, there is still an implicit menu if, if, if the concept of menu is simply a, a collection of things that go together right or selection so so i like what you're saying that that the the value of a menu is that it helps me the user understand what is and in is and is not in scope for this particular product or app right so i can look hopefully look at a menu um, you know, I'm thinking uh, I spend way too long, for example, on Twitter, and there's a menu on the left hand side of things like, you know, um, my timeline and explore and uh, notifications, right? So there's, that gives me a sense of the kinds of things that I can do with uh, Twitter, and it may not align exactly to my needs. And I could just show up and just see a timeline and not any menu whatsoever. But then I wouldn't have a good sense of everything that Twitter can do, presumably, for yeah. me. Um, so I think part of what you're saying is, uh, even if there's not a menu that I can see, there are other frameworks that we can use, like conversation, to engage with a product. But at the end of the day, I still need that kind of underlying structure to help guide the direction that conversation goes in. Did I get that right? Yeah, I mean, I, th I, I, I think that that we still there's, you know, we still kind of come back full circle in a way with that in that, you know, so you think about the movie version of High Fidelity when John Cusack is talking about reorganizing his record library, one of my favorite information architecture uh, moments on film. And and I forget the character's name who comes over to see him as one of his workers like and he says, I'm reorganizing the library and. Can you guess? And the guy says, well, alphabetically, no, that would be too easy. And John Cusack says, I'm organizing it uh, based off of the, the relationships that I had uh, and where they were. And so if I want to pick up, you know, if I want to go to, I mean, I'm not quoting exactly, I want to go to uh, Deep Purple's Machine Head album, I have to remember that I um, uh, gave a copy of it to uh, uh, Janet Jones in high school when, you know, right before she dumped me to go with the guitar player from Little Feet, uh, you know, um, so, so there, but it's still, you know, it's still music, right? It's not sandwiches. He's not storing, you know, so it is still bound by certain things. 
so maybe that's the other thing. And, and, you know, menus help us understand the aboutness of a thing. That's why so many of us just eschew the hamburger menu, the, you know, the, an icon that hides everything, especially if it's not a known space, and especially on a place, a, a canvas where there is room for that. It's just, it's an absolute federal uh, crime. It's, I think, U.S. Code 37.5 that outlaws the use of a hamburger menu on a, you know, 1,600 pixel wide grid or anything larger. Um, that, because it's hard to understand what the about is, and that that's where back to language, where language gives us that sense of what is this thing about before we, as people, invest the time and effort. Now we get into human factors and, you know, cognition and that whole thing about the uh, level of the work required is commensurate or that's performed is commensurate to the expectation of the reward. Um, so, you know, if you get, you know, garlic pancakes based off of your choice, that's, you know, that's not a great reward based off of the level of work. But if you get, you know, a nice buckwheat pancake with some strawberries embedded, you know, and, and then if that's even a choice, it's within the realm of food. As opposed to the realm of, of music, you know, you're not going to, you know, and um, Stephen Wright, the great uh, absurdist uh, comedian of the what 90s, maybe 80s, 90s, I don't know. Yeah. Um, and and one of the things he said, it's ironic, and I was all these things were pinging, and so um, this is how we work, right? We make the connections. But he talked about, uh, you know, uh, I went into an elevator and uh, pressed. Um, went to the selection and pressed Arizona and the door opened and I was in Arizona. You know, it's that idea of, of, of mental model and matching and expectation. You know, uh, I went into an elevator actually this morning that had two banks of choices. One was vertically stacked uh, numbers going descending and the other was horizontal and it was in a hospital. And it, then I thought, well, that makes sense. People who were transporting gurneys who come into the elevator in the back need to be able to choose. And then I looked also at the hierarchy. How do you do, you know, what is the numeric arrangement and a horizontal layout of an elevator choice? Because the vertical is at least also mentally mapped to height, right? right? We don't think about an elevator that would have number one on the top and then go in descending order because that's the way numbers work. They go from top to bottom. Unless the building went down into the ground. And then... Exactly, exactly. So, I mean, you know, so that's a bit of a, of a detour, but it is that idea. I think, correct me if I'm wrong, I think what we're doing is we're coming back around to the idea that whether it's explicit or implicit, there is a menu. And I think we will leave it there. Joe, that was amazing. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you so much, my friend.